So you could have cut the tension in the air with a knife. It was, it was tense. Man, the, the heat was on, the steam was rising. You could, you could smell battle in the air. And the three warriors on the scene, they began to shout their battle cries. Another bay leaf, some more liquid, some more gravy. That's right. It was a nursing home recipe cook-off. The real thing, the real deal, a battle royale. And who were these warriors? Shirley Weintraub was 87, Deborah Zion, 84, and Rita Fishman, 86. Barbara Hoffman of the New York Post was writing last week about the first annual recipe cook-off hosted and sponsored by two senior adult living centers in Riverdale, New York, the Hebrew Home and Riverwalk. And so the contest was set up that the residents would bring their recipe and, and a lot of entrance, entrance, entries were made and then they narrowed it down to just three. And so these three ladies were in the final round, the final competition. And the chefs from both of the facilities, they were the ones that actually prepared the food. But, but Shirley and Deborah and Rita, they were kind of standing over them, giving them step-by-step instructions. So what was first place? Well, first place was this nice little, you know, wooden trophy, uh, wooden spoon trophy. It was, looked, looked real pretty. And then also the winning recipe was put on the menu for both facilities, like on a regular basis. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. A little fame there in the nursing home world. Their recipes would be right there all the time. So who won? Well, it was Shirley's Cabbage Soup. That was the winner. Now, Shirley said that she was given this recipe by what she called a darling old woman who made it for her one day and passed the recipe down to her. And Shirley's cabbage soup is a mixture of coleslaw, ginger ale, and ketchup. Now, I don't eat those things separate, you know, so I'm pretty sure I would not eat them together. But there were a lot of judges, and they were varied in ages and backgrounds, so undoubtedly, this is really good. I, I might try it tonight. I mean, I won't eat it. I'll give it to my kids. But, you know, I might, I might try it, um, you know, sometime soon. Shirley became a widow at the age of 36. And she had three sons that she raised, and I'm sure that she gave them some of her special cabbage soup over the years. And this is what she said. It's delicious and no fuss, and you can freeze it. Well, there you go. That's all you need, right? Something you can freeze and heat up for later. Now, I'm sure there was a little bit of tension between these ladies during this competition, but for the most part, it was probably just good food and good fun. But have you ever been somewhere at a meal where it wasn't always good food and good fun? Have you ever been at a meal where things were a little awkward, you know, just, just a little bit tense, where things weren't exactly right? Maybe it was at a holiday family meal, things didn't kind of go right at the table. Maybe an uncomfortable first date, things were a little awkward. Maybe you get to the restaurant, you're halfway through the meal, and they come and tell you they're out of bacon. You know, just a really awkward, tense thing in your life. So what if in that moment you decided, I'm going to lighten the mood a little bit. I'm going to change the subject. I'm going to try to tell a joke. And it backfired, right? Things didn't get less tense. Things didn't get less awkward. They actually got a little more awkward and a little more tense. Well, one day at a lunch, there was a guy who thought that the conversation had gotten a little too heavy. And so he decided that he would try to lighten the mood a little bit. So what happened when he attempted to lower the tension? Well, let's find out. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 15. 
When one of those who were reclining at the table with Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus had been invited over for a lunch after church. And the person that invited him over was one of the church leaders. And the church leaders invited other folks from church to come over too. So there's a little mess of folks having lunch that day. And as lunch unfolded, Jesus mercifully and graciously and casually, but on purpose, created some tension in the conversation at lunch. The first thing he did was he called out the other guests that were there at lunch because they had acted like little kids when they came into the lunch table trying to fight for the best seats. And then he turned to the host and he, and he called out the host for being the kind of guy that was only trying to be socially active with people who were like him or people who he was comfortable with or people that he thought would think he was important or people that he thought could do something for him. And so everybody in the room has kind of been graciously and mercifully called out and so things are a little awkward, things are a little bit tense. And in that moment, there's a guy who's thinking, hey, I will break the tension. I'll cut the tension in this room. And so what he did was what we might think of as kind of like a toast. So he raises his glass and he says, oh, hey, how exciting is it going to be when when we're all in heaven? Cheers to the kingdom of God. And everybody in the room would, would know what to do in that moment. It would be natural. They would grab their glass and raise it in the air and everybody would say, amen. And the tension would ease and, and everybody would be okay. The only thing is, is, is that when he did his toast, Jesus didn't raise his glass. In fact, Jesus responded to his toast by telling a parable. Now, what's a parable? Well, we've defined it recently like this. A parable is a, a real-life truth set down next to a real-life situation so that real-life people would understand how to do life for real. And so what kind of parable did Jesus tell? Listen to verse 16. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. So Jesus tells a parable about a big dinner, a grand banquet. And everybody at this lunch table would understand what kind of banquet this was. And they would understand that this type of banquet had a double invitation. In ancient times, it was a double invitation. You'd be invited once, kind of officially, and then you'd kind of be invited a second time when everything was ready and it was really time to eat. Now, in our culture, socially, we we don't have anything like this, the way that they did it. So I'm just going to kind of try to make a connection. It's kind of as if we've been invited to a big wedding weekend, a big, huge wedding weekend with a, a big, fancy supper on Saturday night. And so we've, getting, we've been given an invitation, and we RSVP'd. We said we'd be there. And we go, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a grand thing. I mean, the Friday night stuff was fun. You participate in that. Then the ceremony is around noon on Saturday. And then everybody heads out over to this huge banquet hall. And everything in the banquet hall is, is being prepared. This is something that took months to put together. They had to get all the food right, get all the food ordered. They had to get all the chefs together, all the wait staff. This was, this was going to be quite an event. And this wasn't going to be the kind of meal that you'd sit down at for 12 minutes and, and hurry through and run out to the lobby so you can watch the big game on the TVs out there. Now, th- this was an event. This is something that you would be excited about. This would be a pampered extravaganza that you would not want to leave and you would want to be there. And so now you're there, the ceremony's over, you're, you're now in the huge lobby of the huge banquet hall. 
And you're in the lobby and there's tables with chips and dips and punches and, and there's all kinds of things out there. There's a little band over in the corner and, and there's plenty of places for people to sit. There's some of those high tables that you're going to put your drink on and lean on. And everybody's just having a good time. Everything's fine. And then suddenly in the room, there's the sound of loud trumpets. And you turn and you look at the, the main doors to the banquet hall and there's, there's four royal-looking trumpeteers and they have their, their big trumpets and they're playing this clarion call. And then the doors of the banquet hall open and this regal-looking man steps out in a tuxedo. And he says, the banquet shall commence. The time has come. Time to go in for the big banquet. And what happens next? Listen to verse 18. But they all began to make excuses. So the time is coming. This is the best meal. This is the event of the year. You want to be there. And when the moment comes that the doors open and you're about to be escorted to your place at the big banquet table, in that moment, you look at your watch and you go, oh, man, wow, look at the time. Sorry, I got to go. I mean, that, that's irrational. I mean, that, that doesn't make sense that you would do that. And yet that's exactly what happens. And these people, they begin to make excuses for why they're going to leave. And what kind of excuses do they make? And how many people make excuses? Well, Jesus says all of them. They all alike started making excuses. And their excuses sounded like this. Verse 18. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Media mogul Ted Turner is listed as the second person in the United States with the most land. He owns like two million acres of land. Somebody's put that like you own three Rhode Islands, you know. Or to keep it local, it would be like if Ted Turner owned every single acre of land in Newberry, Lexington, Richland, and Aiken County. That's a lot of land. Now, Ted Turner has enough money to buy land without looking at it. But I bet he doesn't. I bet he has somebody who investigates the land before he makes the purchase. The language here in the parable that Jesus uses, it lends itself to the fact that the excuse sounds like they bought a piece of land before they saw it, which is not normal. It's, it's not what a normal person would do. So the excuse itself kind of sounds made up. You know, it sounds a little bit phony, but it's attached to something material. So they're using a material possession as an excuse to fail on their commitment. In other words, something material has become important enough to them that they would choose it over their own character and their own honor and their own commitment. It would be like if we were this person, we'd say, you know what, I know I've made a commitment to do this, but I would rather go look at my land. I would rather go to my house. I would rather go to my vacation home. I'd rather go to my timeshare. I'd rather go do something else than honor my commitment. I'm, I'm just going to excuse myself and choose to damage my character. That's the first excuse. Jesus gives another one. Verse 19. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Hassan al-Bokaya is the sultan of Brunei. Brunei sits just above Indonesia. The sultan is worth about $20 billion, and it is reported that he owns more than 7,000 cars. 
Yeah, which of course, when I read this, my first thing is, I go Google, how much does gas cost in Brunei? And I had all these different numbers, but it is possible, at least one of my research things, that it's less than a dollar a gallon in Brunei. So that's where everybody who owns big Hummers lives now. You know, they're, they're just over there. So the sultan, he can buy any car he wants without looking at it, but he probably doesn't. He probably has someone who investigates these cars before he buys them. It's the same picture here. It seems as if the language here is saying that, that this man, he, he had some oxen that he bought, but he had never seen them before. He didn't know anything about them. And suddenly, in the middle of the big moment, when it's time for him to walk into the banquet hall, he says, you know, I think I'm going to go check out those oxen. It, it sounds irrational. It sounds like a made-up excuse. But again, taking a material thing and placing it as more important than his commitment, more important than his honor and his character. Jesus gives another excuse. Listen to verse 20. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Now I realize I have shared an illustration about someone who owns a lot of land and someone who owns a lot of cars, so I will not be given an illustration of someone who has a lot of wives, okay? Just to be clear. Now this is a completely different kind of excuse. This excuse doesn't involve a person I mean, a possession, it involves a person. It's almost as if this guy's at the wedding, he's standing out in the lobby, and it's time to go into the banquet hall, and he goes, ah, you know, I forgot, I got married last weekend. I probably should go home and hang out with my wife. I mean, it's noble, right? Again, it's it's his wife, you know, it's, it's not just a piece of land or some oxen, so there's something noble about it, but he still is damaging his character. He's still dishonoring his commitment. Now, somebody might say, well, that sounds weird. What's more honorable than spending time with your wife? I mean, mean, how in the world would we say he's damaging his character by leaving this event to go spend time with his wife? That sounds very honorable. Now, remember, before you start making him out to be, you know, Andy Taylor or Charles Ingalls here, remember, he ditched his wife at home to begin with, okay? He went to the wedding by himself. When it said, how many are attending? He said one, and he went by himself. So why is Jesus putting this excuse here? Why is this the excuse in the middle of of talking about leaving the banquet? Why would he include the the wife as something that sounds dishonorable? Well, let's see if we can unpack it this way. Everybody who's sitting at the lunch table with Jesus that day, when they hear the word banquet, most of them would think the same thing. They would think about the words of Isaiah the prophet. In fact, when that guy held up his toast and said, oh man, here's what we should do, he was thinking more than likely about the words of the prophet Isaiah. So what did Isaiah say? Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 8. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. And on this mountain he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. That sounds like a pretty hefty banquet, right? No tears, no fears, no more stress, no more hospitals, no more goodbyes, no more funerals, no more death. That's a banquet. That's the banquet our souls long for the most. And we would not make an excuse for that banquet. We would want to be in that banquet. Now remember, this is a parable 
So there's a, a real-life truth set down to a real-life situation so that real-life people can, can see how to do life for real. So the real-life situation is a banquet. Everybody knows, hey, it's a banquet. Okay, I got that. And the real-life truth is the banquet, the ultimate banquet at the table of God in the kingdom of God with the Son of God for all eternity. See, these folks, they knew when they heard the word banquet, their, their minds would, would race to the words of Isaiah that there is coming a time where we will be at the banquet table of God for all of eternity. Someone once said that on the backside of an excuse is a lack of desire. So if we were to put that thought into our parable equation here, it seems as if Jesus is designing these excuses for us to look at our own hearts, for us to find out maybe how we're talking to God, maybe not how we say it out loud, but, but what's really going through our mind and our heart. And he uses these kind of excuses to kind of press us a little bit. God, I would rather go to my vacation home than to honor you. God, I would rather spend the weekend driving around in my convertible or on my Harley than to honor God, I would rather go on a European trip with my wife than honor you. Now, are any of those things evil? Nope. Any of those things sinful? Nope, not at all. But the picture here is they become an excuse that takes us away from the commitment that defines our character and our honor, and it really defines our greatest devotion and our greatest commitment. But that last one, it just still doesn't sound right. You know, the wife, why, why is the wife in there? Why would it be dishonorable to do something, to spend time with your wife? Well, maybe to answer that, we have to go back to one of God's most basic principles. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Look at your life right now, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your title in life is. And see which one of these next statements might apply to you. Husbands need to honor their wives. Wives need to honor their husbands. Children need to honor their parents. And we can go through a lot of other relationships. See, the, the honor here is important. And the command from God is important. Do not make your family or your friends idols in your life. Don't place your devotion to your family and friends ahead of your devotion to the one true God. Don't make them little gods that you worship more than you worship the one true God. In the simplest of ways, the best way you can love your family is to love God first and most. The best way that you can love your family is to love God first and most. The best thing that your wife and your kids and your grandkids and your friends and your family and the people that you work with and the people you go to school with, the best thing you can do for them is to make sure that they know that your first love is Jesus Christ. And if you fail to do that, then you fail them. To love Jesus Christ first and most is the most ultimate priority of your life, the most ultimate treasure of your life. And if you get that right, then all the other things will fall into place. Not perfectly, 
doesn't mean that if you love Jesus first, your marriage is going to be perfect. Doesn't mean if you love Jesus first that your kids are not going to rebel. But it does mean that your family knows that you are worshiping one primary truth. And that is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the good news of the gospel. That's our priority. That's why Jesus includes this excuse. He wants to be sure that they understand that it may not be a possession, but you can even use a person to reject God. You can use a person as your reason, your excuse to reject God and to reject his gift of salvation that he so freely offers. All of these excuses, they're, they're foolish. They're final. They're not going to change their mind, right? I mean, they give these, you know, we're out, you know. You're not going to talk us into it. We're, we're gone. But they're also a little bit phony. I mean, they're, they're not real excuses. They're excuses that they give, but they're, but they're not real. It's not as if what they're saying is this, look, I'm sorry, I can't come. No, because of the phoniness and the foolishness of their excuses, what they're saying is, I won't come. I won't come. See, their excuse shows that they didn't care about their invitation. And they didn't care about the one who invited them. And they didn't care about the fact that they were failing on their commitment. They didn't care that they were damaging the honor of their commitment. They didn't care. J.C. Ross says this, Infidelity and immorality no doubt slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. And then he says this, No excuse can justify a man in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. See, that's what Jesus is laying down in the middle of lunch. He's letting them know that they are rejecting God. They are rejecting the Messiah and that their excuses will never hold up, not in God's court. So what happened after the excuses were given? Listen to verse 21. And the slave came back and reported this to his master, and the head of the household became angry. He didn't shrug his shoulders. He didn't say, "Eh, oh well, win some, you lose some, no big deal. Now, there's a completely different reaction here. See, the folks that were sitting with Jesus at this lunch that day, they knew about the great banquet. They knew that the Messiah was was coming to make that banquet a reality. And they loved the idea of the banquet of God. They loved it. They talked about it. They sang songs about it. They gathered to make sure they reminded each other about this great banquet of God. They loved the banquet of God But by their excuses and by their daily lives, they showed they did not love the God of the banquet. It's two different things. The love of the holy God of that banquet, his love is deep, it's rich, it's perfect, it's endless, it's everlasting, and it's satisfying. But please let us not forget that that same God He is right in his wrath. He is just in his holy anger. And his holy anger and his perfect just wrath is perfect. It is unswerving. It is endless. And it is everlasting. So what does the host do with his anger? 
Listen to verse 21. The head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So let me ask you a question. What do you do when you get angry? When you get angry, is your first reaction, who can I go be kind to? When you get angry, is your first reaction, oh, I need to go find someone who is poor or blind or crippled or lame and see if I can help them. Or when you get angry, is your first response to pout and to fume and to steam and start biting everybody's heads off around you? Isn't that how we usually respond when we get angry? Whatever your notion of God may be, please do not miss this picture that Jesus gives in his parable. Because the mercy and the compassion and the evangelistic saving desires of the one true God, they are perfect and they are deep and they are rich and they are endless and they are everlasting and they are satisfying. God is so merciful. See, for at least back until Isaiah said what he said, and really way beyond before that, the church folks had been given the invitation from God. They they knew the invitation. They had accepted the first part of the invitation. They RSVP'd, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. But then it was time now for for the second invitation to come along. Okay, now, now everything is ready. So come on. And they suddenly had found people and things and possessions and money and all these other things in life had become more important than the commitment that they made to the invitation. What happens next? Verse 22. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. It goes on. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. I love what Jeff Thomas says about this. The crowds heard the invitation and they said, for me? This is for me? But I am not a religious type. If you knew what I was like, you would never be inviting me to such a royal banquet. I've been involved in immorality and crime and cheating and lying and stealing and perversion and drug dealing and corrupting other people. If only you knew, then you wouldn't be asking me to come to the feast with you. If you knew my hypocrisy, if you knew my lies, my pride, the bitterness I have for some people, the hatred I have for my brother, if you knew the kind of relationship I have with my wife, if you knew, then you wouldn't be inviting me. And yet, that's exactly what God does. He invites. He opens the banquet hall doors and says, everything is ready, come. Jesus is now going to get the heart of the parable, the the real-life truth to the real-life truth. Listen to what he says next. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. This parable is basically asking a question. Who will be sitting at the banquet table of God? 
What kind of person after they die will be enjoying the joyful pleasures of heaven forever? And the answer to the parable seems to come out pretty clear. The the person who will be at the banquet table is the person that hears Jesus say, everything is done. You can't bring salad. You can't bring dessert. You can't bring anything. It's all done. And they hear Jesus say, everything is ready. So come, repent and come. Repent and come and eat. Come to the table. And the person that will be at the table is the person that hears that call from Jesus and in humility and with great joy says, yes, yes, I bring nothing but my heart. Yes, Jesus, I I come. The person receives the double invitation and they honor the double invitation from Jesus. Listen, you may be here today and, and if you're really, really honest with your heart and if your heart's honest with you, you might say and you might know that you're stubborn, you're arrogant, you're prideful, you're self-assured, you're apathetic, you're always fighting to get your way with everybody. You pretty much constantly complain about everything that's happening in the world and in your life. And if that's you, then then I want you to know, Jesus is inviting you. He's inviting you. So please abandon your foolish, prideful excuses and come to Jesus. Or maybe you're poor and you're needy or you're blind, or you're crippled, or you're lame. Maybe you're broken, maybe you're damaged, maybe you're immoral. Maybe you're hungry, maybe you're alone. Please know this, Jesus is inviting you. So abandon your foolish excuses that say, I I couldn't get invited. Abandon your foolish excuses that say, "I, I couldn't come. If you're a moral churchgoer and yet you are denying and making excuses to the second part of the invitation, then give up those excuses and come to Jesus. And if you are an immoral non-churchgoer, then give up the lie that you're not invited because you are. Come to Jesus. The invitation never stops. Come to Jesus. Abandon the foolish excuses and come to Jesus and live.